Our gracious God, we uh, bow our heads before you this morning in this uh, September of uh, 2015 as we begin again another uh, ministry year. And I think of the words that uh, Dan read to us, Father, from um, 1 John and the fourth verse that John was writing these things to other people uh, so that his joy could be complete. We recognize, Father, that when you call us to yourself, you fill us with your spirit, you give us your truth, you equip us with spiritual gifts, and uh, you call us to yourself that we might be your ministers, that we might be those, Father, who uh, do your bidding in the world in which you've placed us at this particular point in time. I couldn't help but think, Father, as we were, um, as Dan was reading that um, confession about how easy it is for us to become selfish and to stay selfish and to forget about you and your agenda for the world that you created, for the world full of people that you love and that you died for. And all around us, Father, I, I, I sense that we're just like losing ground. When I think about how I grew up and how things were, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, compared to how things are now and the way that our own country is going and the way that uh, uh, different decisions are being made and so on, we just recognize, Father, that uh, you and your agenda and what's important to you is becoming less and less important all around us. And we ask, Father, what should we do? And, uh, of course, you've called us all to serve you. You've called us, Father, to be people who, first of all, bear good news to the people around us. Called us, Father, to take the truth that you've entrusted to us, just like uh, John says there in 1 John, that you've entrusted the truth to us in order that we might share it, that our joy might be complete, that we might know that we're here for that purpose and for that reason, that, that your word and your truth doesn't dead end in us, but that it's passed on. And uh, we think, Father, of our young people and the children uh, that uh, we are responsible for to uh, educate and to be examples for and to uh, build into in order that there might be um, equipped disciples in the next generation. I think, Father, we've all summer long we're talking about mentors and we're talking about how we all need mentors and somebody to come alongside of us. And how many opportunities are there in this church, Father, for people to build into the lives of young people? I thank you for the Sunday school teachers that we have, but we need more. I thank you, Father, for the people who work with our uh, young uh, teens, but we need more. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for um, uh, those people who are willing to um, lead or host a small group of believers so that they can come together for the kind of fellowship that we read about there in 1 John. But we need more. We need leaders, Father, to come forward and to say, you know what, I, I sense that that the Father that I worship and that I love and that someday I'm going to go spend eternity with is calling me to serve in different ways. I thank you for the people who gather together and pray for our church, but boy, do we need more. Who would come together, Father, and who would uh, lift up the needs and the burdens. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for those who um, uh, use their gifts and are aware of their gifts and, and understand that 
for every true believer in the church, you have invested, Father, some uh, area of giftedness. I think, Father, of the need for teachers and uh, for people who will take what you have given them and build it into the next person. And, uh, Father, I I think about uh, just how much the fruits of your spirit are needed in the everyday world in which we live. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness to go out from your church into the world in which we live in order that people might know that there's an alternative to this world. There's a God who will indwell us and who will give us his life. And uh, someday that uh, kingdom of God will overcome the kingdom of this world and that we will be able to live forever in your presence. We need, Father, people who will rise up and who will serve you in all these different capacities and many, many more. And so this morning, I just invite your spirit to put it on our hearts as we think about the upcoming year, that we would be open to be led by you, to be less selfish, and to be more servants uh, of the God who's called us to himself and who is working a plan, even in our day, uh, towards an end that's going to be glorious. Help us, Heavenly Father, to look forward to that day when we die and when we stand before you and you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to desire that, Father, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. I had to go get the other podium here because it's taller and the other one, I can't see my notes anymore. So I don't know who the short person was that switched on me, but messed me up. Hey, um, have you noticed uh, that uh, all the top stories in the news lately have biblical implications? Have you noticed, uh, for example, that this whole um, situation with Iran and, uh, you know, the nuclear uh, deal with Iran and Iran's commitment to eliminate Israel has apocalyptic or end times uh, implications and that for us as Americans to be complicit I would have never thought a few years back that this would ever happen. But it's happening. Uh, Have you noticed that that lady Kim Davis down in Kentucky who was jailed for um, refusing to issue marriage licenses to gay couples, um, who is it that determines what's right and wrong in areas of our moral lives and our sexual lives? Have you noticed that the presidential campaign uh, that's starting to ramp up Uh, often surfaces the issue of the separation of church and state. And where does that line get drawn? And how uh, is that to be determined? And how much should our faith influence our policies and so on? And then, of course, we have the Pope coming to town. What's with that? And uh, how are we supposed to think about that and all the hoopla that's involved in that? How does our faith shape our responses to the culture and the cultural issues that uh, we constantly face. And so over the summer, we've looked at these faith mentors from the book of Hebrews. And uh, if you remember, the book of Hebrews is a portion of the Bible uh, that's written to people who profess to be Christians and profess to be loyal to Christ, but who are being tempted to be disloyal and who are being tempted to go back to their old ways, their old tradition, their old priesthood, their old ideas and to abandon uh, their faith in Christ. Uh, Instead of being loyal to Jesus, they were being tempted because of the cultural pressures that were on them to go back 
to their old ways. And so if you have your Bibles open in um, Hebrews, and uh, just a couple of samples here in Hebrews uh, chapter 3 and verse 12, uh, look what the author says. Now take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Wow, you've got this commitment, you've got this profession that you're committed to Christ and he's the connection to the living God. Hey, be careful so that your own heart doesn't like start to slip away. Exhort each other. I can do this by myself. Exhort each other, get together, spend time helping each other hold on to the faith. The enemy that we have is bigger than any one of us. And we all have those times when the enemy comes against us. And how do you survive those times? You lean on the next person. You let the next person kind of carry your burden for you from time to time. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness. I hate being deceived. You ever been deceived? You ever been schnookered? Right? I, I remember... This goes back years ago, but uh, it was Thanksgiving, and somebody called me, and, and, and uh, just I didn't know who they were, and they told me they had been to church several times, and they had this hard luck story, and they needed money, and um, you know they could describe the inside of the church. What you know, I asked them on the phone. I'm like, "What color is the inside of our church? You know, do we have pews or chairs?" They had obviously been here. They could answer all those kinds of questions. So. I took some money and wired it to them. They were in New York City, and the car broke down, and they were stuck in a hotel. And I don't know the whole story. I forget now. But the whole thing, I was schnookered. I was deceived. I was set up, right? I was taken advantage of. I hate that. But that's what Satan does all the time. And so look at the warning here. You know, exhort each other. What would have happened if we had laid that out to each other? Somebody would have said to me, Dave, you're being schnookered, right? Because you've already been schnookered, and you know how that feels, and you know what it's like, and you could have helped me, you know. Uh, For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. So what's with these people that the book of Hebrews is addressed to? Well, they're being tempted to compromise. Chapter 4 and verse 14, uh, same idea, right? Since then we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us, listen, hold fast to our confession. Hold fast. Don't let anybody separate you from your confession of Christ. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse uh, 9. Being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you all over again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk instead of solid food. For everybody who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Move on from uh, infanthood to maturity, you know, and understand the word of righteousness and what's right and wrong and so forth. And I think all of this is extremely relevant to us today, simply because the Bible prophesies or the Bible predicts 
uh, a time of great tribulation that will come upon the world just before Jesus comes back. There is this figure in the Bible, and I don't tend to spend a whole lot of time, but there is this figure called the Antichrist in the, in the Bible uh, who will be revealed. There's, you know, there's a lot in the Bible about the last seven years of human history, and right in the middle of that seven-year period is what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation, and it's when this person, this political person, will be revealed. Everybody will know and will demand to be worshipped. And with the technology that's available today and so forth, when you read the scenarios in like Revelation 13 and 14 and you say, how is it that you know, people won't be able to buy and sell unless they take the mark of this person on themselves and all of that, it, it's all plausible today all of a sudden. It's very easy to see how all of this could happen. And so there's this world leader who arises, this anti-Christ uh, who will demand to be worshipped and he'll create a lot of uh, tribulation for uh, the church and for Israel. And uh, Jesus' return is directly connected. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Paul writes about this and I think, you know, clarifies, I think, a lot of confusion where a lot of Christians camp out on the return of Christ. But let me just read a couple of verses here. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let nobody deceive you in any way. Don't be deceived, right? For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The day of the Lord will not come before this Antichrist is revealed. And uh, notice that in that third verse, it says, let nobody deceive you in any way. The day won't come unless the rebellion or the apostasy or the falling away, depending on which translation you have, comes first. There will be a time of tribulation that will cause people who profess to be Christians to fall away in mass. To fall away. Because why? Because just like in the book of Hebrews, they're going to be pressured by the culture and uh, they're going to have to make a choice. Revelation 13, if you read it, uh, it comes down to you're going to have to make a choice. Are you going to worship this Antichrist or are you going to be loyal to Christ at the cost of your life? And uh, if you go down to uh, verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, who with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because, listen, they refused to love the truth. How does that happen, that people who make this profession about Christ fall away? They refused to love the truth, and so to be saved. They refused to love the truth. And so it becomes so incumbent, I think, to embrace the truth. And uh, many people who profess faith in Christ will rebel against him uh, because of all of the cultural pressure. And people are going to be forced to make that choice. And the point is that the, the book of Hebrews addresses a similar kind of situation to what we face today. Um, and I think we'll face more so in the future. 
You know, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes when I watch TV like this past week and I look at all of these refugees coming out of Syria and Iran and some of these places, I keep wondering, I wonder how many of those are Christians. I wonder how many of those people are fleeing ISIS and are just looking for refuge any place. You remember uh, the pictures of ISIS slitting the throats of Christians, kneeled on the beach and all of that and so forth. I wonder how many of these people are just fleeing for their lives, people who you know, used to be doctors and bankers and lawyers and, and have their houses and cars and lives and families and, and are taking off with nothing you know, except the clothes on their back. And that's how I picture, like, someday the whole world will be in that kind of chaos. And we in America, it's hard for us to imagine anything like that ever coming here. But I thought about 9-11 this past week and thought about, you know, some of the things that are, uh, some of the decisions that we're making as a nation and some of the choices that we're uh, embracing and so forth. Um, There's a day when that could easily be us. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, as we study this book of Hebrews, I'm wondering how loyal will we be to Christ? How loyal are we today? When we have the opportunity to speak up for Christ, do we take advantage of that? Don't you feel sometimes that the Holy Spirit just sets us up and, and somebody says something and it's almost like an invitation for you to speak up? And you chicken out. And I think, you know, it's going to get tougher rather than easier. And so I thought we should pick up in Hebrews, kind of where we left off, in Hebrews chapter 7. And if uh, you want to follow along in the Bible, it's page uh, 1004 uh, in the Bibles there in the seats. Uh, But you know from our study here this year that uh, way back in the very beginning of time, God made a promise to a guy by the name of Abraham. And uh, he promised that he was going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and through his seed, singular, not seeds, but seed, right? And uh, we've traced this. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob develops into the nation of Israel. Out of the nation of Israel comes Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the seed uh, that uh, God promised to Abraham. And uh, if you remember, God took upon himself an oath to fulfill this promise. Um, And he embraced this uh, oath. It says here in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 and and 18... um, If you notice, uh, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. When God wanted to show us that he meant business, that he was going to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham, uh, he he not only told us, uh, but he uh, made an oath and promised to do it, uh, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled for refuge to Jesus might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope that's set before us. See, again, to hold fast, to not compromise, to not give in, to not uh, surrender our faith. And again, um, this is kind of the theme of the whole book of Hebrews. And so uh, Jesus is declared in verse 20, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Chapter 5, in the very end, verses 9 and 10, says the exact same thing. Being made perfect or being made complete, the idea of perfection or completion, 
uh, Jesus being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's this strange, unique guy in the Old Testament named Melchizedek. And I know we talked about him um, before we hit the summer, but I just want to review a little bit because he's such an encouragement for us, uh, and he will be a great encouragement for those uh, who the end times come upon. Um, Way back at the beginning of time, it's like God planted this person, Melchizedek, uh, not just for their benefit, but for our benefit as a prefigurement of Jesus. Uh, He's there to give you and I absolute confidence that Jesus is the one and only Savior. Don't ever buy this idea, you know, that there's a mountain and that God is at the top and there's all different pathways to the top. You can pick Jesus, you can pick Buddha, you can pick, you know, this, that, the other thing, whatever you want, and all roads lead to the top of the mountain. That's not true. There's one Savior. There's one person who came from God. There's one seed that was given through Abraham, who is uh, the source of blessing uh, for the world. And he's a priest after the order of this man, uh, Melchizedek. Uh, Jesus alone, no matter what, um, is that person that God had made a promise about way back in the very beginning in, in Genesis. And so, you know, there's serious warnings here in the book of Hebrews. And we sort of skipped over them, but uh, let me just share a couple of them in Hebrews Uh, Chapter 6, for example, beginning at verse uh, 4, you know, it is, these are like warnings to people who would think about abandoning Christ. Uh, It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's a serious warning. It's impossible if you're enlightened and you're a believer and the Spirit of God gets in you and you decide to reject Christ and to abandon Christ. There's a serious warning. In Hebrews chapter 10, another one of these warnings, verse 26 talks about, again, for if we go on sinning deliberately, if we make a conscious choice, right, Uh, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Dan read for us from 1 John, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and so forth. But if we go on deliberately sinning, if we make a choice that we know is like a slap in God's face, if we go on deliberately sinning, After we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for those sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? outraged the spirit of grace. Did you know that you were even capable of outraging the spirit of grace? Here comes the spirit of grace to just minister to us this undeserved favor that comes from the heart of God through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. And here's us just casually making choices to deliberately sin against 
this God. And uh, I think that's a really interesting, outraged the spirit of grace. Uh, people say, well, you know, grace will cover it, so what difference does it make? Uh, so uh, this guy, Melchizedek, you know, there's only two places in the whole Old Testament where his name is even mentioned. One is in Genesis 14, where Abraham meets Melchizedek, and the other one is in Psalm 110, where Melchizedek is held up as an example or a type of the Christ who is to come at the time of the Psalms. And then here in Hebrews uh, chapter 7 and, and, and following. But you'll notice in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1, um, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, I want to suggest to you there are three, at least three very unique things about this guy Melchizedek uh, that are like Christ and that point us to Christ and that give us this confidence to hold on to Christ even if it costs us our life, okay? Uh, so the first thing about Melchizedek is that he is both a king and a priest. A king and a priest. Now, all through the Old Testament, the king and the priest were two separate people. And if the king did the priest's work, he got in deep weeds. And if the priest tried to do the king's work, he would be in deep weeds. And because these were two separate offices. It was like the separation of church and state. Uh, but uh, Melchizedek um, is both a priest and a king. He's unique out of all of the priests and the kings in the Old Testament. He's the priest and a king. And the Bible says Jesus is of that order. He's not of the order of the priests and the kings. He's of the order of Melchizedek, who is both priest and king at the same time. And he's the king of peace. He's the king of Salem, or Shalom, or peace, or Jerusalem, um, the city of peace someday. Uh, but he's also the king of righteousness. If you look in chapter 7, Hebrews 7 and verse 2, and to him, Abraham um, apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Righteousness and peace. He's the priest of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's the prince of peace, Jesus. And so it's really interesting. I always think that you can't have peace without righteousness. Everybody wants peace. Nobody wants righteousness. And you can't have righteousness without God defining what's right and wrong. And the reason that we don't have peace in our lives or in our families or in our world today is because there's unrighteousness. And uh, when you think about this Melchizedek and you realize that Jesus is after order of Melchizedek, Jesus is the only one who can supply us with righteousness and therefore the only one who can bring peace into our lives, into our hearts at the core. He is both the priest of righteousness and the king of peace. Uh, he is after the order of Melchizedek. And uh, righteousness and peace go together. You can't have peace without righteousness. Uh, I think it's so uh, significant. And not only that, but you'll notice this Melchizedek, verse 1, uh, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. He is a priest, the priest, of the Most High God. And Jesus, of course, is our great priest and our soon and coming king uh, who will rule over the nations. He's the prince of peace. And uh, the kingdom of this world will eventually become the kingdom of God under his authority and rulership. 
So first of all, Melchizedek is very unique and points us to Christ and gives us confidence that Jesus is the only one because he is both priest and king. Second, uh, Melchizedek um, is like Jesus uh, in a sense that Abraham, who is a believer, right, who is the believer, who is the first believer, the Bible calls him the father of all genuine believers. Paul talks about it in Romans that Abraham is our father, the father of all genuine believers, well, Abraham, this believer, this man of faith, this person who believed God, is blessed by Melchizedek. Notice in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the king and blessed him. And blessed him. When you become a believer, um, we are favored or blessed or our lives are enriched by the blessing of Jesus Christ on our lives. And it's fascinating to me, if you go back to Genesis chapter 14, where this blessing happened, uh, in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine and blessed Abraham, the believer, with bread and wine. Now, if you go on and read the rest of the Bible from Genesis, you know that bread and wine are symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So here, way back in Genesis chapter 14, this priest, Melchizedek, this sort of mysterious kind of guy who just appears, you know, uh, comes down and blesses Abraham, the believer, with bread and wine, pointing again, giving us confidence that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior, the one true uh, seed who came through Abraham all the way to us. And it says he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed Abraham. He said, blessed be Abraham by God Most High. And that's what Jesus does when you put your faith in him. He blesses your life. He favors your life. Uh, He uh, gives of himself to enhance our lives. Uh, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Abraham, the believer, is blessed by this priest, this king priest. And then Abraham, in turn, in response, worships Melchizedek. And uh, back here in Genesis, it says, Abram Abram, uh, gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek blesses Abraham the believer with bread and wine. And Abraham turns around and worships him by giving him a tenth of everything that he has. In verse 2 of chapter 7 of Hebrews, where we're studying, it says, And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Can I suggest to you that the very basic act of worship is to tithe. Now, I know that tithing became institutionalized, you know, in Deuteronomy and, and uh, in the Old Testament law, and there's a lot of people who are like, ah, oh, that's legalistic and blah, blah, blah. The truth is, tithing was the response of a believer way before it was a law, right? It's Abraham responding to the blessing. And it's Abraham's way of acknowledging that this world, the material world in which we live, is not going to supersede the spiritual world. In Dan's confession that he read 
talks about how easy it is for us to get caught up into this material world rather than the spiritual world for which Christ came and became our priest and our king and how easy that is. And so Abraham worships Melchizedek by giving him a tithe, 10% of everything. And uh, Abraham recognizes Melchizedek as a priest of the Most High God. He recognized, just like we recognize Jesus to be this priest of the Most High God. And uh, it's a way of saying that uh, God's kingdom is more uh, valuable to us than the kingdom of this world. Worshiping uh, by giving or yielding to God, the first part of the material world, uh, insists that it's not going to be first in our life. And so again, tithing became institutionalized, you know, in the Old Testament. And by the, by the time you get to the New Testament, um, tithing is talked about, I think, like training wheels on a bicycle. Uh, it's designed to uh, teach us to get to the New Testament um, standard, which uh, I think is generosity. Generosity. When you uh, read about this in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 9, for example, the Apostle Paul uh, writes to um, the Corinthian church there. And uh, in verse 6, he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly. You know, if you invest in the spiritual kingdom of God sparingly, well, guess what? You're going to reap sparingly. If you don't spend much time in the word, if you don't spend much time in prayer, if you don't spend, you know, uh, well, then we reap sparingly, right? Uh, And whoever sows bountifully also reaps bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And listen, this uh, this is such a great verse. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All grace, all the time, all sufficiency, so that you can abound. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Listen to this. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. We're not just talking about money and tithing. We're talking about time. We're talking about loving people. We're talking about the opposite of selfishness and giving yourselves to mentor younger people who are coming through and so on and so forth. And look what it says. It says, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Aren't you thankful that somebody invested in you the way they did? And aren't you thankful to God that these various people have uh, intersected your life and made deposits into your life, spiritual deposits along the way? And God is calling us to the same things, what ministry is all about, to take what God has given you and to invest it in order that others might be thankful to God for you and your contribution from God to their lives. The third unique quality about this Melchizedek that gives us confidence that... um, he is, you know, a forerunner to Christ is this. There's no record of his beginning. There's no record of his birthday, this guy Melchizedek. And there's no record of his death day. There's no record that he was ever born, and there's no record that he ever died. And so, again, um, Hebrews uh, 7, uh, verse 3, the next verse, 
talks about this, um, and it's not lost on the author of Hebrews. Um, he, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Again, this guy, Melchizedek, was planted by God way back in Genesis so that we, upon whom the end of the ages have come, can have absolute, total confidence that Jesus is who he says he is and to never, ever compromise our commitment to him. Uh, it's like Jesus, who existed long before his birthday, Christmas, and he lived long after his death day on Good Friday because of Easter and the resurrection. Uh, Jesus is the only real priest that's left standing. I love this, verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is the only mediator between us and God that's left standing. Not on the basis of his connection to other people, but on the basis of his resurrection, his indestructible life. Uh, the old priesthood depended on a direct connection to Aaron, right? And the whole the Levite tribe. It's sort of like the Pope, and his connection has to be uh, traced all the way back to Peter and uh, all of that, you know, but not Jesus. Um, look at this in, in 716. Uh, Jesus became a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The guarantor of a better covenant. And then 23 and 24, the former priests uh, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is after the order of uh, Melchizedek. And uh, here's why these other priesthoods don't work. Verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which uh, no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of some legal requirement, but on the basis of an indestructible life. I don't know about you, but uh, perfection, right? The, the word perfection there, if perfection had been attainable some other way, the word perfection means complete. Uh, it means satisfied, it means finished, it means done. And when I think about perfection, I realize, you know what, there's not much um, about me that's perfect, right? Uh, maybe you're different, but uh, there's not much about me that's uh, perfect. My thoughts aren't perfect, my body's not perfect, my family's not perfect, my job's not perfect, my past is not perfect, right? There's one perfect part about me, my salvation. 
the part that Jesus did. See? There's one perfect part about my life at the core. And it's the part that Jesus accomplished. And uh, that's the one perfect part. It's my salvation. It's the part that Jesus did for me. Uh, And what he has done is perfect, and what he will do is perfect. He's the only one who could do that, and he did it by the power of an indestructible life. He did it by the power of an indestructible life. How important is it to you today that Jesus is alive and that he's indestructible? How important is that to you? Uh, When you put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, have you ever asked yourself, which Jesus did I really put my faith in, or do I have my faith in today? Is it Jesus, the unique man who lived 2,000 years ago and walked the streets of Israel and performed miracles, giving sight to the blind and making uh, deaf people hear and even raising people from the dead? Is it Jesus, the man who taught people to love one another and revealed the truth about God, the man who was crucified at 33 and died on a cross for your sins? Is that the Jesus that you have your faith in? Or is your faith in the Jesus who is actually God and who became a man, but who was raised from the dead, the Jesus who lives an indestructible life today, Uh, the Jesus who is alive today, the Jesus who can't be killed by men, the Jesus who can't be silenced and who can't be ignored and who can't be replaced, and the Jesus who is coming again, the Jesus who is able to impart life to us because he's alive himself. The Jesus who was able to, by his spirit, put his life into each of us. His indestructible or eternal life. Jesus, in fact, the Bible says, wants to live in us. He didn't come to help us. He came to give us life. Too many of us are tired Christians. And we're trying. We believe in this Jesus, the man of 2,000 years ago. And we embrace his teaching. And we're trying to live like him. And we're exhausted. Romans uh, chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For uh, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his what? Life. When Jesus died on the cross and took away our sins, what did that do for us? Well, if we embrace that and believe that, it reconciles us makes us right with God. It reconciles us. But what about being saved by his life? If you say, what did the cross do for me? I would say it reconciled you to God. It makes you at peace with God. It's wonderful. What does the cross do for you? What does the resurrection do for you? It makes the life of God available to us today. The power of an indestructible life that's available to come and live and dwell within us today. So that in an increasingly, if the life of God were to take up residence in me, I would begin to see things the way he sees things. I would begin to do what he did. Right? In an increasing fashion, I would have the power in my life to make the decisions that he made. But without being exhausted, it would just be this life, this new life that dwells within us, right? And I think that's what Paul taught. What's the significance of Jesus' death? I'm forgiven. It's great. Hallelujah. But what's the significance of his resurrection? 
It's that his life, his indestructible life is available to us today. Resurrection is about life, right? It's about the restoration of life. If his life gets into my life, imagine the transformation that would take place. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for this book of Hebrews. I'm so afraid, Father, that our faith is going to be put to the test within our lifetimes as we just see the way things are going and we kind of monitor the times in which we live. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we'll be prepared. I pray that we'll be so convinced that Jesus is the one and only mediator between us and you and that Jesus is, in fact, coming again and that we will, in fact, be resurrected, that we can share in this indestructible life and so that if it came down to us having to make a decision as to whether or not we would betray Jesus in order to hold on to our life, that we would remember, no, we already have this indestructible eternal life dwelling within us through the power of your spirit. And we thank you, Father, for these great truths in Jesus' name. Amen.